Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. When you ever you do a jigsaw puzzle, the first thing you do is you lean the box up against, you know, something and you have to look at the picture while you build the jigsaw puzzle. Well, we all represent a piece of the picture, each one of us. And, uh, and my piece of the puzzle is to, is to get everybody to keep looking at the picture. So we don't walk around aimlessly holding our puzzle pieces, you know, not sure where they fit. But my job, I'm the preacher. My job is to keep, keep reminding people what the picture looks like. So if you have a piece of the puzzle that can help build that picture, then, then let's build this world together. Mm-hmm. And each of, us, each of us have a role to help build that. Some people, you know, run companies where they get to literally inspire the people who show up to work every day and build a, a, an environment in which trust and cooperation will survive. That's their role. Some people are in, you know, building online communities where they've committed themselves to serving these people online. Or some of these people are sort of the big brothers of the other solopreneurs. They may not be the, the most successful solopreneur, but my goodness, they're the backbone for all the other successful ones. Like we each have a role. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. 
Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. How's it going, Simon? Very well, thanks. How are you? Uh, Great. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to join us. You're welcome. I like being called an instigator. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's funny. The reason I brought that up uh, is I, I have numerous times had this question of, you know, how do you find your why? And I said, you know, we effectively can blame Simon Sinek to all, for all of this. And at some point, we're going to get him here on the show to finally get this issue resolved. So I'm really glad you're here. Thank you. Nice to be here. Yeah. So, Simon, I, I want to ask you my very first question, uh, which I usually ask everybody. And that is, um, can you tell us a, a bit about yourself, your background and how that eventually led to you doing the work that you do and the work that we know you for today? Uh, sure. I mean, I wake up every single day inspired to sort of inspire people to do what inspires them. There's a lot of inspires in there. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I, I believe in a world in which the vast majority of people wake up every single day. Um, inspired to go to work and return home every single day fulfilled by the work that they do. Um, And this is what I've committed my life to and all my work to. It wasn't always that way, however. Um, You know, I reached a point in my life a few years ago where I I, I couldn't articulate why I was getting out of bed in the morning. And I was, you know, my my story is the same as many other people. Um, I thought success was defined by my bank account and, um, and how big my business would build. And I had all of these stresses. And, uh, and even though all superficial standards said that I should have been happy, I made my, you know, I had my own, my own business. I made a decent living. I didn't feel it waking up in the morning. And it was this loss of passion that set me on this new path. Um, I made this discovery of this thing called the why and realized that if my life was to be in balance, I knew what I did and I knew how I did it, but I didn't know why. And so I uh, became obsessed with it. I literally stopped talking about what I do and always started talking about what I believe. 
Uh-huh. Um, you know, when you make some, when you when you discover something beautiful, you share it with people you love. And that's what I did. I shared it with my friends, and my friends invited me to share it with their friends. They invited me to, you know, and then the invitations kept coming, and I just kept saying yes. So the growth of this and where I find myself in my life today has been completely organic. Uh-huh. So a lot of a lot of uh, questions come uh, from that for me. You know, especially given that you know what we're going through as a society is that you know we're experiencing career transitions like never before. We're seeing tremendous amount of career uncertainty. You know, I had Sean Acor here, and he said job dissatisfaction is at an all time high. Yeah. And you know, one of the things you you said is that the va- you, you want to you envision a world where the vast majority of people wake up inspired to do what they do. And I yeah. don't think that we're quite at that point yet. I think there's a, a huge gap between where you want the world to be and where you know, where it currently is. Is. And I'm, you know, wondering what can people do to start bridging that gap in their own lives and in their own work. Well, you know, um, <laughs> we found ourselves in a place where we've accidentally created this problem. You know, mm-hmm. um, and if you, if you, you know, the world is filled with danger, right? If you go back to caveman times, there were any number of things that were trying to kill you. Nothing personal, but they were. You know, whether it was the weather or lack of resources or a saber-toothed tiger, nothing personal, but all of these things trying to kill you. And so we evolved into these um, social animals who realized that our survival had a better chance uh, if we cooperated. You know, there's inherent value in, in living amongst a tribe of people we trust and love, which is, means I can fall asleep at night and trust that someone else will watch for danger. If we don't trust each other, then we can't fall asleep at night. So there's, an, there's inherent value in being together. Well, that hasn't changed. Although um, our biology hasn't changed in 50,000 years, the thing that has changed is our environment. But the dangers are still there. In a business environment, you know, uh, there is still dangers outside. You know, the ups and downs and uncertainty of the stock market and our economy, a new or emerging emerging technology that might render a business model obsolete overnight. Your competition that sometimes is trying to kill you, but it's very often trying to steal your business or frustrate your growth. Um, you know, nothing personal, but all these things are out there trying to do, trying to, you know, frustrate growth and and survival. And so once again, the only way in which, um, we can take it all on is if we cooperate and quite accidentally, most of the cultures in America, most of the corporate cultures have, have created environments which do not foster, foster trust and cooperation. That's the problem. And if you look at the best functioning organizations, the most innovative organizations, every single one of them, their cultures eerily uh, harken back to this time 50,000 years ago. And if you, if you create an environment in which you make people feel safe, in other words, if, if we don't fear our leaders, if we don't fear uh, our colleagues, if we don't fear that we're going to lose our jobs if the company simply doesn't make its numbers, if we don't fear that if we make mistakes, you know, we're gonna, we, we might be at risk, and we don't have to fear the dangers inside our company. What starts to happen is we naturally cooperate, trust each other, work together to face the dangers outside the company and seize the opportunities. Unfortunately, uh, too many too many people work in, in companies where that's not the case. And so we have to. We're forced to invest more of our time and energy to protect ourselves from the dangers inside, which ultimately makes the whole organization more susceptible to the dangers outside. So now, to answer your question, what can we do? Um, we, I, I get this question a lot. Like, I'm only in middle management. You know, my CEO, you know, would rather save the number and sacrifice the people rather than sacrifice the number than save the people. What do I do? Well, believe it or not, um, the, you don't worry about them. You ignore them. 
You worry about the people right next to you, um, the people whose names you know, whose faces you recognize, the people you talk to every day, and you commit yourself to service. You commit yourself to looking after the people around you and hoping that they will feel safe. And the, the safer we make the people around us feel, that we would do something, you know, we would help them when they need it. Not just ask them, but get up from our chair and go help them. Um, that we would uh, uh, maybe even give up credit to ensure that they get credit for, for what they deserve, as opposed to stealing credit. You know, little things like that. The more we work to, to make those around us feel that, that they're safe, the, the more that they will commit to do it, the same for us. And so really, this, the sea change begins with us. It begins, it begins with the risks that we have to take and the sacrifices that we need to make to look after those around us. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of stuff there. Um, but I want to go back to something else that you said earlier, you know, that you kind of woke up one day and you realized that you, you weren't passionate or you, you didn't really, you weren't really clear on, on sort of your why. And sometimes I, I think that we sleepwalk through life. I know, I know I did. Uh, and I'm curious, you know, one of the things, and this is a really weird question I realize is, is how do you know that you've reached that point, that breaking point or that moment? Uh, when something has to change? Or how do you know you're headed towards sort of a dangerous breakdown where something is going to have to change? I mean, you know, everybody knows how they feel. You know, we mistake the highs of winning a piece of business or we mistake the highs of an exciting event at work with being fulfilled and happy with our work. You know, the question is, do you want to wake up and do it all over again? And do you you feel like you belong wherever you work? Um, And if the answer is no, then, then something's wrong. Um, and, and everybody knows when it's uncomfortable and we have a choice. We can either make a change now, uh, change the way we do things, uh, or we wait until the depression or the collapse or, you know, the, the, the watershed event of which we have no control over, and then it'll be forced upon us. Um, but it will happen. The collapse always happens, you know, um, imbalance, uh, cannot, cannot last very long. Mm -hmm. Uh, and whether it's whether it's the destruction of our relationships, the destruction of our egos, whether it's um, you know our sense of self confidence, our sense of own ability, our own fear, our own ability to solve problems or invent new things, you know it, it'll it'll eventually collapse. So we can choose to we can choose to take the risk now. Or we can choose to wait to have it thrust upon us. Mm-hmm. Well, you know it's it's interesting you bring that up. I I had Eric Wall, who's a graffiti artist here, and I remember one very uh, one part of our conversation very distinctly when he said, you know. Uh, there's this quote by Soren Kierkegaard that all change is preceded by crisis, even though we'd like that not to be true. And yeah. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, I, I don't necessarily think that's true, but 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 if you don't make change to avert, I mean, it's it's an it's it's not a it's not an easy thing to prove, right? Mm-hmm. Because if you make a change before the crisis, then the crisis will be averted. <laughs> you know, it, it's when you don't make it was when you refuse to make the change that that yes, that crisis will will. <laughs> will then force the change. Um, you know, we, we like to think we're in control of our lives, and we are to some degree. But like I said, there are outside factors that that we have no control over that have a, have an impact on us. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes those outside factors are as simple as our bosses, you know, um, or the or the organizational lead, or the organization's leadership itself. Um, yeah, I mean, crisis is pretty good at forcing change. That doesn't mean change is always good, but you know, we react to crisis, you know, and sometimes reaction is not the thing you need. You know, if, if somebody, if somebody comes up to you and, you know, we all, you, everybody's had the situation where you're driving in a car minding your own business and some guy sort of cuts you off and then curses you out. Now we, what we tend to do is 
curse them back, <laughs> right? Well, that's because we reacted to whatever mini crisis it was, as opposed to thinking to ourselves, hold on, I don't need to waste the energy. It's only going to escalate the problem. I think I'm just going to say nothing or just maybe put my hand up and say, sorry, even though it wasn't my fault, just to, just to de-escalate, right? But we don't do that. So, you know, I guess the problem with waiting for crisis is the reaction isn't necessarily a constructive one. So, you know, I want to uh, ask you about one other thing that you said. You know, you talked about sort of concepts of creating trust, cooperation, safety, and helping those around us. Um, yeah. And we're talking about it in the context uh, of our working lives, our organization. And a lot of people listening to this are, are creative entrepreneurs or solo entrepreneurs uh, are, are doing things in the online world. And what I'm curious is about is how we connect those concepts to the work that we do online and create that kind of environment for the tribe that we're building uh, and, and let that play out in our messaging, our branding, our products, our services, and everything that we do. Well, it's still the same. I mean, an online community is still a community. And although there's a lot of virtualness to it, there's an art of sort of artifice to it, it obeys some of the rules of all normal communities. In other words, you still have to serve the community, right? If you try and take advantage of the community, the community will leave you. I mean, we've seen this played out a number of times. You know, uh, Rupert Murdoch bought MySpace, and tried to use it as a platform to sell other other products of News Corp. In other words, he, he, he saw dollar signs in these people. So instead of serving them, he tried to take from them. And look what happened to MySpace. It went, it's, you know, it's, it's a shadow of its former self. You know? So whenever, whenever uh, an organization sees a, an online community as something um, of a... Of a, of the, you know, they, they think it's fish in a barrel that can be profited of. The, the, the success will be short-lived, if at all. Um, so you still have to serve the community. It still has to be about them. Mm -hmm. So let's go back to, to one other thing that you said. You know, after you reached this point where you, it became very clear, you know, one of the things you said is that you redefined what success looked like for you. Yeah. Uh, and you know, I want to dig into this process in a bit more detail because one of the things I think we do is we hear that and it sounds sexy and we think we're redefining success. But what we're doing is we're taking somebody like Chris Gillibo's definition of success and saying, OK, well, now that's my definition of success. And then we become disillusioned with it. Um, so I'm curious, you know, if you're guiding people on sitting down and, and really evaluating their life and redefining what success looks like for them, truly for them, not based on what somebody else thinks, their parents or somebody sure. who is an online celebrity thinks. Uh, one, how do you do that? And, and how did your previous background and career sort of influence and shape your views around all of this? Well, well there are objective standards to this stuff, you know, which is success is defined by the thing that makes you feel safe and happy, right? Like when you feel calm and you don't feel threats, you know, you feel good, you know, you feel like you could do this. Um, and you don't feel the pressures, um, then you are successful. And the way that the way that happens is with strong relationships. Um, you know, money comes and goes, fame is fleeting. The only thing that lasts are the relationships we have. Um, we live in a very materialistic society that chooses to define success based on on on, on numbers alone, and that is one kind of success. But I've very often met very very rich people who are not happy. And people say, and I say, well, you know, how great is it if they're not happy? And somebody will always say, well, they seem to be doing something right, as if being rich and unhappy is right. But like if you had $50,000 a year salary um, and you were very happy, then you'd be doing something wrong, you know? Mm -hmm. So the, the fact of the matter is there are objective sort of anthropological standards to this, which is, which is, the, which is always defined by the quality of our relationships. And so if you can, if you can maintain 
strong relationships where you're committed to others and they're committed to you and you would sacrifice to see them succeed and they would sacrifice to see you succeed, then go off and make as much money, fame, fortune as you want. There's a stable foundation. But but to do it in the other order is... Um, it's, uh, it doesn't feel successful after a while. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I, I, can, I can concur. I, I can tell you that, you know, I mean, I, I, I've struggled at times to make money, but the most fulfilling part of what I've gotten to do in building an online community is hands down the relationships. And I look at that and I, I always, you know, I say, you know what, you can't take your, your numbers or your metrics are with you, but your friendships, they last forever. Your relationships, they last like long yeah. beyond. Maybe my show won't be here 10 years from now, but the people I've met will still be. Uh, not without a doubt. And I mean, and for anybody who sort of questions this working definition, I would ask them this, you know, what do you want on your tombstone? You know, do you want on your tombstone the number, the last number that was in your bank account? Do you want on your tombstone the number of sort of, you know, a JD Powers awards you got? Or, you know, do you want on your tombstone that you're an Inc. 5000 company? You know, or do you want on your tombstone, you know, what we always want on our tombstone, what, 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 what we did for others. He gave, he believed, he loved, you know, um, he served, you know, we, we want on our tombstones the way others will remember us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so why not, why not use our careers and use our businesses um, to, to start to create, to create that? Because this is what midlife crises are. And this is what happens. You know, people wake up later in life and they go, oh shit. Now I have less time to do that. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me ask you this. You know, so we got to this point where you've redefined things. You, you've discovered how important this message is to you. And you said that it kind of grew organically. And I'm not going to let you off the hook that easily because I don't do that to anybody. I want to start digging into, into this in a bit more detail because a lot of people might hear that and say, you know, Simon woke up one day, had a religious experience. And the next thing you know, he's a New York Times bestselling author. Uh, but you and I both know there's a lot more that goes into that. So talk to me about the evolution of Simon Sinek, as we know him, uh, as the guy who came up with the start with why concept, I mean, from, you know, sort of passing it on to your first friends. Uh, I mean, the way I was thinking about it when you were describing it is I'm a surfer, so I can relate everything to that. To, to, I was thinking about it as riding a wave and adjusting to what the wave is doing as you went along and got feedback. And I'd love for you to dissect that in a bit more detail. You know, the, so I'll, I'll equate it, I'll equate it to speaking, right? So people ask me, how did I get good at speaking? And one of the one of the things that I've learned is that when I when I show up to take, it doesn't go very well. But when I show up to give, it's entirely different. And you look at a lot of speakers who stand on a stage, you know, they can't resist at the end, you know, saying, if you want more, please visit my website or if you want to buy my product or here, please follow me on Twitter or, you know, and there's a at the whole time there's their name and website behind them. And I learned to, to let go of that. I, I don't want anything from anybody in an audience. I don't want them to, I'm not showing up to, to get them to buy a book or watch a TED talk or, or follow me on Twitter. You know, I'm, I'm there to give, I'm there to share. And the amazing thing is there's the rapport that you can create with someone when you have that disposition is dramatic. And so uh, I, that's sort of been a guiding principle for me in a lot of the things that I've done. And, and when I say it's organic, what I mean is, is there was no fancy marketing plan behind it. And, there, you know, I didn't hire anybody in Bangladesh to like my book on Amazon, you know, <laughs> there's no, there's no tricks, there's no gimmicks, you know, um, the reason that my book sold or that, that, that people saw the Ted talk is because other people talked about it because other people recommended it. And the reason that happened is because the ideas that I tried to present and tried to share, I genuinely believe in, I, I had to suffer to learn them. 
And I don't think, I don't want anybody to, to have to go through what I went through because it was awful. You know, it was like sort of depression. And, and if I can share those ideas in a simple and compelling way that you don't have to go through what I went through, then all the better. And that's why those ideas are resonant. And if somebody believes in them and wants to share them with a friend who believes would find them inspiring, and then they share them. There's, that's the reason. And so I hate to cop out of the answer, but the reason it spread was not because of me. Mm-hmm. The reason it spread was because of the generosity of others. Well, I, you know, I, I can tell you firsthand uh, any success I've had. I, you know, I wrote a book recently called The Small Army Strategy, and I can tell you that entirely was based on the, uh, the generosity of others, the success of it. There's no question in my mind. Uh, yeah, that it was. I sent it to 20 people and they sent it to a lot more people. Yeah. And if you show up to take, you know, if you show up to, you know, sell books, sell books, sell books, then you're, you, there's, a, there's a push and people are resistant to push because it makes them feel pressured and it doesn't make them feel safe. Uh-huh. Where when there's a sort of a little more of a sort of selfless approach, it's a non-threatening and it allows people to embrace the idea rather than reject the person. Well, let me ask you this. You know, I think that some people are going to hear that. And one, one of the thoughts that will probably come to mind is say, OK, well, Srini and Simon, it's easy for you guys to talk about generosity when you've achieved some le- level of success. Uh, and this is very counterintuitive. I think it's a radical mindset shift. And it, it's one that took me a long time to make and to really understand that, you know, you get back what you give more than you could possibly imagine. Uh but it's very it's a weird sort of thing when you're when you're starting out or there's nothing there and it it feels like you're you don't have anything to give except for the fact that i've been doing it for many more years you know than i have now uh-huh. so yes the cynic would say of me well, well it's all fine and good for you simon you can afford to do that well i've been doing it long before that um i do i did it when i couldn't afford it i would remember looking at my business bank account we had $10,000 in the bank account you know, we, we would be lucky to be able to make payroll and payroll expenses the next month. Um, and this went on for a very long time, many years. And we would have people offer us money, but they were bad fits. And we would take a deep breath and say, it's not right. We can't do it. We have to say no. And so it sucked and it was hard. But I, I, I made the decision a long time ago that I would rather work with people who can help me advance this, 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 you know, this idea of spreading this cause and make less money than, than take the money, but be really unhappy, be bossed around by some, some client that I, that I sort of have made myself dependent on. It's like an unhealthy dependent relationship. Right. Um, uh, and eventually it paid off. Um, I still do it to this day, meaning I could probably make more money than I do. I think people think I'm richer than I am. (laughs) Uh, but, uh, um, but like I said, for me, the importance is is to work with people that inspire me as much as as much as are willing to pay. Um, uh, you know, I, I had I had a, an experience when I went to Afghanistan with the Air Force that profoundly underscored that. I mean, I'll give you the, the short version, but I went there um, in August of 2011, and sort of everything went wrong, <laughs> and. Uh, um, I found myself stuck there without a flight to get home. And I never told my parents that I was going because I didn't want them to worry. And I was there with two other officers who were looking after me. And, you know, we were stuck there and didn't know how we were going to get out of the country because there were no more flights. And um, I remember just sort of getting depressed and regretting it and saying yes to this trip and didn't want to, wished I wasn't there and became paranoid because the base came under a rocket attack the night before. And I was convinced there was going to be another one that was 
going to land on me. And it just was a really sort of uncomfortable, bad, sort of really depressing experience. And I gave up. I was like, well, if I'm going to get stuck here, I might as well make myself useful. So I'll volunteer to speak if they want me to. I'll volunteer to carry boxes, sweep floors, whatever. And as soon as I made that decision to serve others, to serve those who serve others, I felt fine. I felt relaxed. I felt calm. I even felt excited. It was the strangest thing. And at that moment, when I'd come to that realization, one of the officers I was traveling with, you know, comes back into the room, the door flies open. And he says, there's a flight that's been redirected. We've got to go. We've got to go. We've got to go. We've got to go now. And so we grab our stuff. We rush out. Uh, we grab the other officer who's with us and the three of us rush out to the flight line. And just as we get to the flight line, the security cordon comes down. We're not allowed, at, not allowed to the plane because there's a fallen soldier ceremony. And out of respect, when that happens, everything stops out of respect. And so we waited. And finally, the security cordon went up and we got on the plane. We would be the only three passengers aboard this plane, um, in addition to the crew, obviously. And the reason the plane was redirected is because we would be carrying home the soldier for whom they had the fallen soldier ceremony. So I flew on the flight for nine and a half hours with a flag draped casket. And I lay there because it was an overnight flight. We all sort of pulled our sleeping bags out and, you know, found a place to sleep on the floor of the cargo plane. And, uh, you know, I lay there and staring at this flag draped casket. And I realized that this guy knew a lot more about service than I ever did. And I ever will. And, um, it was a great honor. It was a great, great honor, I got to tell you. Um, but I, I, when I got home, um, I remember being really short-tempered uh, more often. I couldn't understand why. I was really, you know, when something would go wrong, I'd go off the handle. And I couldn't figure out why. And I realized that I would also do other things, like maybe I'd go speak on a military base or go do something with a sort of really forward-thinking company. And I had tons of energy. And if anything went wrong, I'd be totally relaxed. And I started to realize that when I worked with people who believed in looking after other people, I had endless amounts of energy and enjoyed myself. And when I worked with people who only wanted me so they could, you know, drive the bottom line and nothing else, even at the expense of other people, literally my body had a visceral sort of reaction to it where I got angry and upset and, and I didn't want to be there. And as soon as I realized what the pattern was, I stopped saying yes to those things and um, I don't get angry as much and I'm a happier person for it. So this idea of serving those who serve, who serve others is, uh, is core. And there's biological and anthropological underpinnings for this stuff. You know, this stuff's not really my opinion. And this is core to the survival and thriving of the human animal, which is we're constantly looking to build relationships that can help it protect, protect us, protect our families, and help us advance ourselves. And, uh, and when we fear for our careers uh, simply because the company didn't make its numbers, uh, why would we ever commit to giving anything more than the basics to our companies? It's just, it just doesn't happen. And in the online community or solopreneurs, it's the same thing. It's very hard to be a solopreneur because you're by yourself. And at the end of the day, it's the relationships, it's community that helps us survive. That's why what you do is important because there are other people who tune in and, you know, if they get to meet each other, you know, it's even better. But, but, you know, I don't believe in solopreneurship. I, I think it's, I think it's a fool's game. Sure. You can make some money. And sure, you can sort of, you can give me the, 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 the sales pitch of, I get to be my own boss. Yeah, I get it. I get it. I get it. But those days where things go wrong and you're by yourself, it, it's awful. It's horrible. It's depressing. It's sad. It's, it's, it, it, it's heart-wrenching. It, it just, the energy that it re is required to keep going at it when you don't think you can do it. And that's why partnership is important. 
to have someone close to you goes, no, I believe in you. Let's do this. We can do this together. To have each other, to get through the hard things or to have a small team, but at least two people. And if you don't have that, really the burden of responsibility goes up to form a community of solopreneurs who can get together on a regular basis and be that support group to each other. I mean, think about every single crisis that ever happens in the world, every addiction that ever happens in the world. How do you beat it? There's some sort of community. There's some sort of help group. There's some sort of, you know, it's always human beings and human relationships that, that help us solve our problems. Because when we don't believe we can, but someone else does believe we can, it empowers us like nobody's business. And likewise, we get the satisfaction of getting to tell somebody else, I believe in you and I got your back. Um, it, it's, it's everything. That was really just poetic and, and beautifully said. You know, I, I love that, you know, you really nailed this whole idea about human relationships matter. And, and it's interesting because even though we are solo entrepreneurs, there's no question in my mind that we are completely dependent on each other. Uh, you know, somebody asked me once, what, what do you attribute the success of the show to? I said the generosity of a lot of other people uh, to come and share their ideas, people like you who are willing to come and talk to me, uh, even if there might not be anything in it for them, you know, or, or it might not be anything in it for you. And as you were talking about, about this whole story, it reminded me of, of a, a conversation I was having with a friend at lunch the other day. She said, it makes complete sense why you do this. She said, your deepest need is that you crave connection with people and there's nothing better for you to do than to do this because you get it every single day when you do it. Correct. And, and, and don't be so, you know, don't pay me so much credit. <laughs> it, it, it's not so, you know, so there's nothing in it for you. Of course there's something in it for me. This is, this is as, much as, as much as it may appear altruistic, there's something deeply selfish going on here as well, which is I have an ideal, which I articulated before, of a world that I imagine that I'm committed to helping to build. And the more, and my role in that, because it's a jigsaw puzzle, right? It is, is a, there's a big jigsaw puzzle. And, uh, and as you know, whenever you do a jigsaw puzzle, the first thing you do is you lean the box up against you know, something and you have to look at the picture while you build the jigsaw puzzle. Well, we all represent a piece of the picture, each one of us. And, uh, and my piece of the puzzle is to, is to get everybody to keep looking at the picture. So we don't walk around aimlessly holding our puzzle pieces, you know, not sure where they fit. But my job, I'm the preacher. My job is to keep, keep reminding people what the picture looks like. So if you have a piece of the puzzle that can help build that picture, then, then let's build this world together. Mm. And each of, us, each of us have a role to help build that. Some people you know, run companies where they get to literally inspire the people who show up to work every day and build a, a, an environment in which trust and cooperation will survive. That's their role. Some people are in, you know, building online communities where they've committed themselves to serving these people online. Or some of these people are sort of the big brothers of the other solopreneurs. They may not be the, the most successful solopreneur, but my goodness, they're the backbone for all the other successful ones. Like we each have a role. My role is to keep articulating and describing the picture on the box so that we can build it. That's my job. And so the selfish drive for me to do something like this is... You have a lot of people who can help build this world that I imagine. And if I can articulate it in terms clear and compelling enough, maybe they'll help build it. Totally selfish. Mm -hmm. I love this. Uh, it's, it's genius. So uh, I don't even want to touch it, but I think that it makes the perfect setup to finally get to the bottom of why you're here. Uh, like I said, I blame you for all of this. And I've blamed you for this for a very long time. I said, finally, we're going to get to talk to Simon Sinek today and get to this question of why we do what we do. Uh, and, you know, it, it's interesting because you've, you've kind of talked about it, but 
what I want to do is get into a tactical framework because I've asked this question to so many people, Simon, and I figured, you know, you're the you're the root of it for sure. Uh, and, and it seems like once people have it figured out, something dramatic happens in their life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and the, the closer I get to it, the more I feel like my life is changing uh, for the better. So what I'm curious about is how you discovered it in your own journey and sort of providing us with a framework for how we can figure out why we do what we do. Um, uh, it's a pattern, right? Um, if you look at your, the, the, the jobs you've loved the most in your life, uh, the times you've been uh, your happiest when you've absolutely loved what you've been a part of, if you go throughout your life, the patterns that you, you will find um, is consistent, which is there's, there's always a, a reason, there's something behind. Um, even though the work may not have been easy, but the thing that fulfilled you was always the same, and we're all different. Um, um, and so there's many ways to do that. You can literally sit down and go through your whole life, you know, and, and, and articulate, you know, the best, the best things you've ever done, the things you've loved, and you'll, you'll find that pattern. And this is what we do. You know, we have this, um, you know, this is what we do when I, when I sort of do wide discoveries with people. But if you want, I can, I can show you, I can take you through like a quickie version of it. That would be fantastic. For you and your, for you and your listeners to, to, to hear it. So why don't you tell me, um, of all the things you've done in your career, tell me, tell me a project you worked on or something you did, even if it wasn't commercially successful, that you absolutely loved being a part of If Every project you could do was just like this one. You'd be the happiest person alive. I'm doing it right now. Uh, okay, but tell know, me something. I want to know something specific. As, as far like so, running Blogcast FM and building this show has hands down okay. been the most fulfilling thing I've done to date. Okay, um, so what specifically is it about this that is something that you love so much? I love the fact that I get to connect with people. Um, I love the fact that my relationships. I'll tell you what it is. Somebody asked me once, so what is it that draws you to, to people so much? I said, the idea that there would be a point in my life in which I stopped making friends absolutely terrified me. And uh, somebody asked me about college. I said, you know, college is not the only place to drunk and get drunk and get laid, although it's a damn good place to do both. Uh, but the idea that I would have no social outlet the moment I left an environment that was naturally conducive to it was one of the most terrifying things to me, uh, mm-hmm. which is, it was why I loved this, because my my connection to human beings and and the group of people I know continually expands. Like I thought the idea that we stop making friends in adult life was ridiculous. I was like, why would anybody say you have enough friends? Mm-hmm. So so give me a specific example of you doing the show that helps me understand that idea. So give me a, somebody you may have met or a friendship you may have formed. Like give me a specific example. Um, well, I'll give you a, so actually this is coincidentally the day the show launched, uh, I met a woman named Maria Brophy who ended up having a very profound impact on my life. Uh, I met her at Seth Godin's event when Lynch, Lynchpin came out, uh, in Orange County. And, uh, you know, I literally, the day the show had started that day, she appeared as a guest probably a year later. And when I moved to Costa Rica, uh, in 2011, because she and her husband are both surfers, uh, and her husband is an avid surfer, I said, Hey, I'm moving to Costa Rica. I'm selling everything I own. She ended up setting me up with a free place to live. I mean, she's always been one of those people that uh, I kind of fall back on it and count on. When, when things have gotten rough, she's always provided guidance uh, in, in very difficult times. So that's that's the most specific example I could think of. Mm-hmm. And but, and how did that relationship form? We met at a, uh, a networking event uh, in Orange County when Seth Godin was speaking about Lynchpin. And right. uh, I just formed, literally just launched Blogcast FM that morning. And what was it about 
what was it about her? Like, what did you talk about that made it, that made you connect with her? Uh, well, there was the common bond of surfing was definitely the one thing that we had. I mean, her husband is actually a real surf. You know, I thought I was like a big time surfer at the time. And then she showed me pictures of her husband surfing the bonsai pipeline, which is like 60 foot waves. And he's, he's just like a hardcore big wave surfer. Got it. Got it. Okay. Um, um, tell me your, um, uh, earliest specific happy childhood memory. Wow. Not like we went to the, you know, the fun, the park every Thursday, you know, like specific, something that you can, you can describe and I can relive the, the memory with you. You know, I, I guess it, it happened as, as late as, as junior high. Um, I played the tuba for, mm-hmm. for 13 years and I was never good at certain things. Like I was never good at sports. I was never a standout in any way at all in any of the things I did. And the day I picked up the instrument, I remember the band director distinctly telling me, he said, you're going to be really, really good. Someday you're going to be an all-state band. And I didn't even know what that meant. But it set a context from that point forward that everything I did fell under that. And eventually I did make all-state band. But I guess the idea of, of being that good at something, to, to, to be a standout, drove me in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And so, okay. And so, uh, so you see the pattern between the, the two stories, right? Kind of. <laughs> it's about finding the one thing that you're good at, right? Yeah. And it's that one thing that you can find that you're good at, that if you, if you make it yours, if you find somebody else who's good at the same thing, you'll form the relationship because, because you're not trying to be good at everything. Mm-hmm. You're not trying to be good at the things that other people are good at. You're trying to be good at the thing that you're good at. And sometimes you discover it easily. And just sometimes it takes a little more effort and it's a little harder but it, you know, in your case, you you were lucky enough to stumble upon it in, uh, you know, in what did you say, junior high? Mm-hmm. In junior high, you know, probably because somebody took you under their wing and said you should try this, you know. Um, and so it's all about finding the thing that you're good at, um, especially if it's something unusual. You know, surfing is not a common thing. Playing the tuba is not a common thing. Um, and so when you find other people who are good at these unusual things, a bond will form. Um, how does that feel so far? It's interesting you say that because somebody asked me, what is it? You know, I, I always look for common threads between the people who are on this show. And you know what? They're people who are good at unusual things. They're artists. They're, they're, they're misfits. They're instigators. They're ordinary people who do extraordinary things. That's their common thread. There you go. And you, and you are enamored by them because they have found the one thing that they're, that they're good at that they have focused on and made a career out of or built a business out of or whatever they've chosen to do with it. But, you know, become experts, become, you know, uh, you know, whatever, aficionados. But, but they found this one thing that, that they've loved. And I'm hesitant to call it find your passion because it's sort of, that's sort of <laughs> very unactionable, you know? But it's, 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 it's and it, unfortunately, it's a bit of a trial and error game, you know? You kind of have to try stuff. And you have to be open-minded and willing to try stuff before you will find that one thing that for some reason, who knows why, who knows why you took to the tuba and who knows why you took to surfing, you know? Uh, um, but uh, it's finding that one thing. And it happened to me, you know? I find that one thing that, I, that sort of suits me, you know, this, this want and desire to preach about a better world. I mean, that's, it kind of suits me, you know? I kind of like it. I love it, mm-hmm. you know? And, uh, and I, I focus on it and I do it as much as I can. Why? Because I like it and I love it. And people are, who want to talk to me or are drawn to me is, is because I'm good at my one thing. Just like people who want to talk to you are good at the one thing. 
And I'm going to guess that a lot of what you talk about in your show is going to be about, you know, the, the, these these one things that these these people have be that they they've found and they've 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 built upon upon it they built something upon it mm-hmm. and they didn't force themselves to try and play the game by everybody else's rule and if everybody else said you have to do it this way but it didn't feel right to them they didn't do it and it's the courage it's the courage that you preach the courage not to do things the way everybody else says just because it worked for them it's the courage to find the thing that works for you and then do that Amazing. So that's where your why lives. Your why lives in to, to, to inspire people or encourage people or help people <coughs> find, find that one thing. <coughs> to help them find that one thing that inspires them and makes them stand out from everybody else and then encourages them to keep doing it, even if it's unpopular with others, because the tuba is not popular with others. <laughs> I can tell you that from my parents' reaction to, to uh, my admission to the USC School of Music, which I declined to attend. Right. So, so it's, that's, that's your why. And everything you do should be designed to help people find that one thing. I love it. It's, it's, really, it's interesting. And now that you've said it, I can see those threads in, in a lot of the things. I mean, I can see that in, in the event that we're planning, uh, the instigator experience. I mean, it's about people bringing their bold ideas to life. There you go. And I, I, it, it's funny. I would have never made the connection between tuba playing, surfing, and this sh- and doing this show. I mean, surfing and doing this show, I would have, but the tuba playing part, I would have never guessed. There you go. So let me ask you this. Let's say we we're gonna, you know, you've done this for me. Let's say we extract it down to kind of a, a framework that people can apply to what they're doing in their life. Mm-hmm. Um, how would you boil it down if we were to give them sort of the five steps, <laughs> Simon Sinek's five step guide to finding your why? Well, I mean, like I said, you, you want to find more data points. The only reason I'm good at it with a few data points is because I'm practiced and I've done it a lot. Mm-hmm. And so you can do the exact same experience, um, you know, with, his, with, with, you can go through the periods of your life, junior high school, high school, you know, early career, mid-career, current time, you know, whatever it is, and do the exact same thing, ask the exact same set of questions over and over. I mean, this is what we do in our Y University, you know, which is we have this online, uh, we have this online uh, tool that one of the people on my team said, hey, Simon, you should be sharing this with more people. And so God bless her, she built it. And it's this online university that guides people through the process to find these points in their life and guides them through the process of finding, you know, finding, being able to identify that pattern. Uh-huh. Um, but, you know, you can, you can do it yourselves as well. You know, whether you, you know, whether you do something like a formal course or not. So let me ask you one other thing. I don't know if you you picked up on this. Did you notice that none of the things you mentioned were ever career related? Like I could have, because when you had asked about jobs, I was about to tell you I hated every single job I've ever had, with the exception of one. Well, I mean that's that's just the way it worked out. I mean, <laughs> for some people, it you know they may have found something in their careers that that, that inspired them, but you know not in your case. Uh-huh. Well, let's do this. Um, let's shift gears a little bit. I, I want to talk about a few more things, and I, I will come back to the book. But you know, you brought up something earlier about so now that we've got some some clarity around this, why uh, you know it, it seems like this should be the filter for every choice I make, almost uh, when it comes to who I want to work with, the kind of products I build, uh, the way my languaging comes across, and, and my vision. Uh, and you brought up that whole story about this visceral feeling and, and the way you evaluate clients. And I'm wondering. You know, are, are there are there criteria that you use to determine whether somebody is in line with 
you know, your message and your mission and, and how people can develop their own when they do well, that. Kind of work. Yeah, it, it's not so much that they're in line with mine is that we share the same. Right. Um, um, I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, it's like <clears throat> if I asked you to write an online profile for who you want to marry uh-huh. and do you have any deal breakers, you're going to be like, yeah, there are a couple deal breakers, you know, um, oh, I I've don't. written them already. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like it, you know, a heroin addict would be, would be a deal breaker, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and it's the same thing. It's not, it's not as complicated as we make it sound, which is, which is, you know, what are the deal breakers? What are the people that, you know, if you work with them, it'll, it'll either make you uncomfortable or it really will distract you from, from doing this one thing that you're, that you really lo- get tremendous joy out of. And in my case, um, I am absolutely viscerally drawn to people who believe in putting people before numbers. And I'm viscerally offended by people who believe in putting numbers before people. You know, I like to work with people who would rather sacrifice the numbers to save the people than sacrifice the people to save the numbers. And so that doesn't mean that the organizations I work with will get it right. I've worked with some organizations, some very large companies, who really, they're terrible places to work. They really are. And, they, and the people are treated terribly. However, the leadership really wants to do the right thing. They just don't know how to do it, you know? So it's not like I'm just preaching to the converted of people who are already good at it. I work with people who are terrible at it, but they have the deep, deep desire. Or a public, you know, a, a, a leader of a public company who's like, I have the pressure from Wall Street. It drives me crazy. I wish I could ignore them to do what's right by the people, you know? Um, those people I love working with. It's not that they have had success. It's that they, it's where their hearts are, you know? Um, where um, one guy I had a, a meeting with who, who told me that, uh, you know, it was, it was out of his control and he just had a fiduciary duty to serve his clients regardless of the impact it has on people's lives, I will never work with that person for the rest of my life uh-huh. unless he has some sort of conversion, you know? Um, so you get the idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah no doubt. Well, let's do this. Um, I, I want to start getting into a, a bit more tactical things, a few more tactical things here. You know, I, and I love this. So what I'm curious about, you know, you talked about clients that you've worked with, some of the, you know, you've worked, and I, I know having read your book, you've worked with some world-class organizations. Uh, you know, a lot of people are going to want to know once they've sort of got some clarity around this message, this mission and all of that, how they translate it into something tactical in terms of products, in terms of services, in, in terms of what they do with their online work. And then I, I want to talk briefly about uh, the new book that you have coming out and, and your writing process and we'll wrap things up from there. Um, I, I, again, sort of the, we already know the tactics, like everybody knows the things we have to do. Like we have to come up with a plan and we have to come up with a product and we have to come up with a marketing message. And like the tactics are pretty universal. It's the manner in which we perform those tactics. Um, and so there's multiple ways of saying something, you know, um, do you start with what, or do you start with why? So for example, you can, you said to me, Hey, Simon, so tell us what you're up to, you know? And I could say, well, I've got this new book coming out. I've got this coming out. And I've got this new online university coming out. We've got this coming out. And we've got this friend. And they're fantastic products that people help, you know, not compelling because I'm not starting with why. And so when you say, Simon, what are you up to? And I say, well, everything I do is devoted to this one idea to build this world that I imagine. And I explain that world that I imagine. Then I go into the specific things that I'm doing to help advance that cause. So the tactics are not particularly new or exciting. It's the manner in which we, we do them. Uh-huh. And sometimes, sometimes, this is the hard part, sometimes it means not doing something because even though it might be profitable, would put you off course. Those are the really hard ones. Uh-huh. Yeah, 
I, I really appreciate that you pointed that out. And I, and I agree. Here's what I found, uh, at least in my experience, and I'm guessing you've started, you've seen this too, is when we walk away from the things that, that, you know, uh, aren't meant that things like that, uh, we make a space in, in our lives. And, you know, I say when we let go of the expectation of the things that we, oh, the way we think things are supposed to, we would get the opportunity to experience the way they're meant to be. Right. Yes. <laughs> so, well, let's do this. Uh, I, you know, I know you have a new book coming out. Uh, I, I'd love for you to talk to us kind of about the seeds of the new book briefly, um, kind of your, your writing process, uh, you know, what goes into a book uh, and, and how you get it to the level. I mean, I think you, you've kind of touched on what has been the driving force behind the success of your books, uh, which is the generosity of a lot of other people. So I'm not expecting some, you know, laid out Tim Ferriss style marketing plan. Uh, but I would love for you to talk about sort of what's gone into this next book. Yeah, and by the way, I, my books have not enjoyed the same success as Tim Ferriss, you know? <laughs> so, to his credit. <laughs> um, uh, so, I can answer the question. So, my, the new book is called Leaders Eat Last. Um, and this is what I've learned, which is the people who deserve the position of leadership, the people who earn our trust, who we would volunteer to follow, to follow blindly to help them build their vision, um, when it matters, those people would sooner uh, uh, feed us than feed themselves, um, metaphorically speaking, sometimes literally. Just like a parent. A parent, when it matters, would rather feed their children than feed themselves. There's, a, there's an amazing photograph. You know, We just recently had this horrible thing going in Kenya with these terrorists that you know, went into this shopping mall and started shooting. And in the New York Times, they, they ran a photograph from inside during the, the crisis and this is one photograph that I'm absolutely captivated by. I've gone and looked at it so many times of a mother lying on top of her child because that's what mothers do. They throw themselves on top of their children in times of danger. And quite frankly, this is Leadership 101. In times of danger, this is what leaders do. They throw themselves on top of their people to protect their people, sometimes at personal sacrifice. And unfortunately, we live in a world now where too many leaders would rather sacrifice their people to save themselves. And, and based on the all of the biology and anthropology and the history of Homo sapien that violates everything about what it means to be a leader, every rational, objective standard of what it means to be a leader. And so this is what I've been studying. Um, I've been studying why some teams pull together and others don't, and this concept of feeling safe amongst our own tribe so that we can better organize and, and, and face the world and face the dangers and seize the opportunities together. Um, and that's what the book is about, the new book. Um, uh, in terms of my writing process, uh, you know, I have no romantic illusions about writing a book. It's horrible. <laughs> uh, it's an awful, horrible process uh, that is stressful and um, difficult. Um, and it's probably more stressful and more difficult because I don't have a process. You know, some people have the discipline to wake up every morning and write from nine to five or have the discipline to wake up every day and write 5,000 words a day. I unfortunately can't do that. Um, I'm much more of an artist, uh, in, in my process, which is, I kind of have to feel it. You know, I can go days without writing a word and I'm consumed by guilt. So I can't even go enjoy myself. You know, I'll sit at my computer and feel guilty, <laughs> you know, or I'll watch TV and feel guilty. So I can't even like disconnect. I just feel guilt. And then I'll have this moment of inspiration to sit down and write 10,000 words. Uh, the problem is I don't know when those times happen. Mm. Um, so it's a horribly stressful, awful experience. Um, and uh, this one was no different. <laughs> uh, this one was, you know, the worst, 
most difficult thing I've ever done this last book. Um, and frankly, the irony is everything that I wrote about, I experienced. In other words, the only reason I got through it is because some amazing people who stood by me, believed in me, who, who, who suffered with me, who stayed up late with me, who, who went through the stress with me, who, who helped me out when I needed it most. The only reason this book exists is, is, is ironically because of the very concepts that I wrote about. Mm-hmm. So one other question around, around the creation process, you know, you mentioned some very, very big ideas, uh, you know, one, ones that are, are very bold and obviously you've got to boil it down to the essence of fitting in a book. Uh, so, so two questions around this one is what goes into the research of it? And then how do you filter with such a, such a vast subject matter? And I'm asking yeah. this for very selfish reasons because I have yeah, an no, idea of the book. Well, or... this is the trick of good book writing. Um, and my publisher sort of taught me this, which is you can't write about everything. And most of our ideas, especially the stuff that I write about when you get into human behavior, are gossamer. In other words, you could every, every door you open could be in a whole new book. And you kind of have to pick one of those themes and say, this is the one I'm going to delve deeply into. And you have to have the discipline not to pursue the others. And you will always leave stuff out and you have to just be okay with that. A book, a book about everything is a book about nothing. You have to pick a book about something. Uh-huh. And, and, uh, and that's hard, to be honest. Um, and for me, it's an iterative process. You know, I, my mother dropped me on my head when I was a, when I was a kid and now I can see patterns. You know, I, just like with the little why discovery thing we did, like I can see patterns. And so my, my process starts up with an idea, a basic idea that I start to research. And the more that I read and the more I start to learn and the more I talk to people, the more I start to discover patterns. And those patterns, then I pursue one of the patterns. And if there's another pattern within that, then I pursue that pattern. It's, it's, it's kind of a bit chaos theory-like um, until I find the pattern that I think is the most beautiful and that's the one I'll write about. I love it. I, I think it's, it's genius. I, I'm not even going to touch it because I don't really have anything to add to that. I could only taint it, I figured. <laughs> so, Simon, uh, I know you got to get going here because we're, we're close to about an hour. Uh, I'm going to ask you my final question, but I'm going to change it up slightly. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, it, it's interesting. I, I've always asked people, I said, you know, we live in this world where there's an abundance of opportunity, uh, despite the fact that it, it's, it's the most uncertain, most tumultuous time career-wise in history. You're also seeing innovation and creativity just bursting like never before. I mean, I, I, I say it's, it's like being back in a kindergarten classroom, except we're all adults. Mm-hmm. And I see this dichotomy of people, uh, only because so many of them have appeared on my show. I guess the people who found their one thing. Uh, mm-hmm. And there's people who achieve at a certain level, like Danielle Laporte, the Seth Godins, uh, who go out and really, they just blow our minds. And we look at that and we say, okay, well, that's what we kind of, we set that as sort of our, our barometer, I guess. And, and maybe that's part of the problem. But what I'm curious about um, is, what do you think it is? Uh, do you think it's clarity of purpose that distinguishes the people who get everything they want from the ones who don't? Uh, I don't think anybody gets everything they want. And I think the ones that, the, 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 the ones that are distinguished are the ones that are really happy with the stuff they get. And, you know, and, you know, they, they don't feel like they're without. Um, that doesn't mean that they don't have ambition to want more, but that doesn't mean that they don't feel without, you know? Um, and I think the ones that are dissatisfied are, are never happy with what they get. It's like, like it, we've all had this experience, I, I myself included, right? You go to a, an event and they have goodie bags at the end, right? And you get, you get handed your bag and you get 
a, a bright pink sweatshirt with polka dots for free in your goodie bag. And somebody else gets the same sweatshirt in, in blue. And what do you do? You get jealous. You want what they have. You want the blue one because it's nicer. And yet you can't accept the fact that you just got a free sweatshirt. 10 minutes ago, you had no sweatshirt. And now you have a free sweatshirt. Maybe you give it away to someone to make them happy. Like you got a free sweatshirt, but we don't do that. We look at what we have. We compare it to what others have. And we want what they have. And that's why we're unhappy. <laughs> I, I, I love it. I think it's genius. It's funny because that's what my entire uh, Facebook update today was about is that it's the only thing worth comparing or the only people worth comparing yourself or the only person worth comparing yourself to is the previous version of who you were. And even I mean, that is a delicate balancing act. Yeah. I mean, look, my, you know, so my TED Talk is the number two what, most watched TED Talk on the site, right? Now, should I be angry and competitive and want to be number one? And I can tell you there are other people who are, whose TED Talks are growing fast, and I'll very soon be number three and then four and then five. <laughs> it will drop down and my, it'll hurt my ego, you know? But at the end of the day, how cool is that, that I made it to number two and like I didn't even do anything. I just put an idea out and people loved it. Like to take joy in what we achieve and not worry about whether I'm number one or number two and not worry about how long it'll last and that eventually it's going to go down, which by the way, it will, because nothing, <laughs> it, it just this thing, these things don't last. But to take absolute joy in the accomplishment itself is, uh, is, is, a, is a beautiful thing. And I think most of us, don't take joy in the success that we have. We keep comparing ourselves to uh, to others wishing what they had, you know? Why can't I be a billionaire, you know? It's like, because you're not. I don't know what to tell you, you know? <laughs> so so I, I think the ones that are actually most successful and ironically that continue to build their success are the ones that are so grateful for any success that they achieve at any point in time. Mm-hmm. Well, Simon, uh, this has been absolutely epic as I uh, expected it would be. And uh, you really, honestly, I, I can't thank you enough for your generosity and your time and, and sharing your insights with our listeners. I know people are going to get a ton out of this conversation. Well, thanks for giving me a forum to share my ideas. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. And uh, for those of you guys listening, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, visit the instigatorexperience.com and uh, you'll be on the pre-launch list for our first in-person event. And we'll close the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.